In chapters 1 and 2 of uh, Job, we uh, laid down some foundation blocks in understanding Christian suffering. And so there were five foundations of Christian suffering that we had to understand, and those foundation stones give us a square base, they give us a plumb line to build our understanding of suffering and build our understanding of God in a biblical way. The five building blocks were that the righteous suffer, God is in control, Satan is only an agent of suffering, God initiates suffering for his purposes, and our comfort and refuge is ultimately in God. And if we lose hold of God's perfect control over all suffering, then the end result is we lose hope that our suffering has any purpose or is redeemable. God has to be in control of suffering because if he's not in control of it, then what hope is there in it? Now this week what we're going to do is we're going to look now at the biblical response to suffering, which starts with lament, or we could say that the the biblical response to suffering is lament. It doesn't just start with lament, it is lament, because lament itself is a journey. It's a beginning with a middle and an end. It's a, a process that we see Job move through. Lament is a prayer in pain that leads to trust. And if you look in your handout for your life groups, I've actually just given you one of the answers where you can fill in the blanks, and you're ahead of the game already for your group. Lament is a prayer in pain that leads to trust. Now, Job chapter 3 is the beginning of Job's lament. And I was going to spend some time in Job 3, but what I want to do is move ahead to Job 7. And as you read through the next 32 chapters or so of the book of Job, you'll find when Job speaks, he interjects his answers to his friends' accusations with continued lament. And that's why we need to talk about lament very quickly here today, because basically the next 30 or more chapters of Job is a series of questions and responses and laments from Job. And so we need to see what Job is doing here as he laments with his friends. Chapter 3's lament starts off a little one-dimensional. Job simply wishes that he had never been born, born, or he wishes that he had died as an infant, or failing that, he wishes he could die right now. He's basically not gotten very far in his lament journey other than, I wish I was dead. Uh, that's it. And uh, it's important to notice that Job's lament is a journey, but at this point in his grief, he's no further along than wondering why he even exists in chapter 3. And many people reach that same level of grief that Job does here. He was bitter, we see in verse 20, but not out of control. He was angry with God, we see in verse 23, but not cursing God. But what I want to do is I want to move a little bit ahead in lament to chapter 7, where Job's lament starts to take a wider look at his situation. And as I read this portion of Scripture, it's important to pick up on the variation in Job's sorrow, the complaint that he has against God the questions that he has, and his assessment of his situation. While we're not necessarily going to be examining this particular chapter verse by verse or closely, I want you to hear this lament as a starting point of understanding where Job is at and how he is speaking to God. And then we will look at various scriptures uh, throughout the Bible where we see people speaking to God in this prayer of lament. And you may hear echoes of your own situation here as Job talks about the toil of labor, the emptiness of lying awake at night, the anguish of illness, the onset of old age, the shortness of life, the struggle with our sin, and all these things. This is why I chose chapter 7, because Job kind of touches on all these various parts of human existence, and he touches on them as a lament. So let's just hear the Word of God in Job 7 and see what we can begin to unpack 
about this prayer of lament. Job speaks, Has not man a hard service on earth, and are not his days like the days of a hired hand, like a slave who longs for the shadow, and like a hired hand who looks for his wages? So I am allotted months of emptiness, and nights of misery are apportioned to me. When I lie down, I say, When shall I arise? But the night is long, and I am full of tossing until the dawn. My flesh is clothed with worms and dirt. My skin hardens and then breaks out of flesh. My days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle and come to their end without hope. Remember that my life is a breath. My eye will never again see good. The eye of him who sees me will behold me no more. While your eyes are on me, I shall be gone. And the cloud fades and vanishes. So he who goes down to Sheol does not come up. He returns no more to his house, nor does his place know him any more. Therefore, I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. Am I the sea or a monster that you shall set a guard over me? When I say my bed will comfort me, my couch will ease my complaint, then you scare me with dreams and terrify me with visions so that I would choose strangling and death rather than my bones. I loathe my life. I would not live forever. Leave me alone, for my days are a breath. What is man that you make so much of him and that you set your heart on him? Visit him every morning and test him every moment. How long will you not look away from me nor leave me alone till I swallow my own spit? If I sin, what do I... Do to you, you watcher of mankind. Why have you made me your mark? Why have I become a burden to you? Why do you not pardon my transgression and take away my iniquity? For now I shall lie in the earth and you will seek me, but I shall not be. So now as you hear those words, you get a picture of where Job is at (laughs) in all different areas of his life. He can't find any comfort. He can't rest. He tries to go to sleep and he's kept awake and he's thinking about his sin and he's thinking about how short his breath, his life is. He's thinking about the illness that he's suffering under. He's thinking about his relationship with God and he is speaking his complaint. For us to understand lament, we have to understand what's going on here in Scripture. And uh, as I was looking into this and I was reading things and listening to various podcasts, I, I heard a quote from a, a gentleman, Mark, he's a pastor, Mark Vrogrup, and uh, he was talking on a podcast, and it's one of the clearest summaries of lament that I, that I ran across, and it serves our point today. This is what Mark says lament means. The biblical songs of lament teach us how to vocalize our pain. Lament is how we bring our sorrow to God. Without lament, we won't know how to process pain. Silence, bitterness, and even anger can dominate our spiritual lives instead. Without lament, we don't know how to help people walking through sorrow. Instead, we will offer trite solutions or unhelpful comments or impatient responses. Without the practice of lament, we will miss the lessons that lament is intended to teach us. Lament is how Christians grieve. Lament is how we learn important truths about God and ourselves. So there is a place for lament And one of the things that we ran into, I was actually just talking to someone yesterday when I was talking about what I was going to be talking about today, and they just said, I don't think I've ever heard a sermon on lament in my my entire life. And I said, you know what, I don't think I have either. You know, I'm going to preach one, and I've never even heard one. And But this is the reality that we sort of run into, and and you run into in the book of Job, especially when you don't read books like Job very often, as a church or individually is that you discover these things, these, these sort of hidden treasures in Scripture, and you realize, where is that in the church today? Where do we lament? 
You know, when you look at the Psalms, roughly a third of the Psalms, out of 150 Psalms, close to 50 of them are laments. Now, we have lots of songwriters today, but if you were to go through the top 100 or even the top 200 of the top Christian music list of, of 2018 or 2019, you might find two or three percent of the songs are laments. We have lots of triumphant songs. We have lots of victorious songs. We have lots of God-glorifying songs in that regard, but there are very few laments. And so the question is sometimes raised, what do miserable Christians listen to? <laughs> because we've lost lament in our modern church. We've, we've lost it. But when we see in Scripture so much Scripture dedicated to lament, we have to realize that there is something here that we've lost that we have to regain. And it's largely connected to this quote that lament is meant for us in Scripture and in our lives as the way that we process sorrow in a proper biblical way. So we do grieve, we do complain, we do have sadness, And in a sense, we do lament, but I think most of the time we do it poorly, and then we feel guilty about it because we don't lament well. And we have to learn how to pray when we are in pain so that God can help us through our sorrow and to reaffirm our trust in Him. Lament is the language of people who live in God's sovereignty but live in a world with tragedy. And so I could give some examples of just what might have gone on this week or this month in a church like ours. Just within the spheres of families sitting here in this room, people you know personally, I can imagine that things like this have happened. Someone has been diagnosed with cancer. A spouse or a very close loved one has died. We just had a funeral yesterday. There's been a serious accident causing life-changing harm. A marriage has disintegrated. A baby is stillborn. An addict has overdosed. A family's become homeless. Someone's attempted suicide. And the list could go on. And that's just a normal week in a normal church. These things happen in the lives of believers. All these people believe that God is good and that God is in control, but life is hard. Their life is hard. We see people going through things like that right here at Lakeside. And we're encouraged to know that so many know that God is good and that they do trust in sovereignty, that they can rejoice in all circumstances. But most of us don't know how we are meant to return to that place of trust in a biblical way. And that's what the Bible shows us lament is for. Lament is the language where we live between the reality that life is hard, but God is good, and they coexist. Suffering and God's goodness coexist in this tension of the in-between time as God is in the process of redeeming what is broken. We live in that process of redemption, and lament is the language of that in-between world. So we do need to recover lament, and we do need to recover the grace that comes to us through lament. And so this morning, I'm just going to have basically a conversation about lament. I was going to, like, just a survey of lament in Scripture because there's so so much of it and how we can respond and what we need to do. And the first thing, I think, is that we need to stop being afraid of lament as Christians because we are afraid of lament and we need to stop being afraid of it. I think as Christians, we're often afraid of lament because it's too open, it's too honest, it's too risky in the way we feel we need to speak to God. And we recognize the danger in lament, that it it cannot be taken as permission to just rage against God in a sinful way or to, to just stay in our grief. But in our fear of offending God, we fail to discover that there's an appropriate acknowledgement of our pain and an appropriate complaining. You notice Job said there, I will speak my complaint. 
And if you were just to do a word search on complaint in the Bible, you would see how often people complain to God. It's a key word. We need to learn as Christians how to complain, how to ask very pointed questions of God for our own benefit. And one of our best guides here, other than Job, uh, is the Psalms. About a third of the Psalms, as I said, are actually laments, and there are complaints raised to God, and they're difficult questions in prayer form. If you go to the Psalms, you hear things like, How long, O Lord, will you utterly forget me? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I harbor sorrow in my soul, grief in my heart day after day? That's Psalm 13. You hear the question that is being asked of God, How long will you forget me? Or Psalm 22, of course, that Jesus quoted, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. It's a psalmist singing to God, asking these questions about his pain. Or there's six questions in Psalm 77 asked. Psalm 77 says, I I cry out to God, aloud to God, and He will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. Will the Lord spurn me forever? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has His steadfast love come to an end? And it goes on. He's got three or four more questions there. Now think about this. If you are sitting in your life group and it's prayer time and you're all sitting there with heads bowed and somebody starts praying like this and keeps it up for the length of the prayers of the Psalms. I mean, keeps this up for five to ten minutes questioning whether God's goodness has fled, whether he's forgotten to be gracious, whether God's love has come to an end. A lot of people in that prayer circle would start after a little while to feel uncomfortable. And afterwards, you might actually take that person aside and say, You shouldn't pray that way. That's not how we pray in our life group. Those are not the types of questions that we should be asking God. We'd be tempted to shut down prayers like these lamenting prayers that we find in Scripture. Even though that person would be praying Scripture, we'd be telling them to stop. Because you just don't talk to God that way. Or, coming back to Job, if you were to pray that way, you would be tempted to accused them of being faithless, right? Like Job's friends accused him. Or you might accuse them of even sinning for praying that way, as Job's friends accused Job, right? As as Job bears his soul to God and speaks his complaint and will not be silent, his friends in his little prayer group while they're sitting on the ash heap there are saying, Job, don't pray like that. And Job's saying, no, I won't be silenced. There's this scary reality that grief brings to the table and lament vocalizes that reality. If we don't understand as Christians what is taking place when someone in our circle is lamenting, then we would be tempted to respond like Job's friends. We'd be tempted to shut down the prayers of a lamenting person or to accuse them of being faithless. But lament is a demonstration of faith in the sense that we are talking to God about our pain, trusting Him to hear. It's messy. There's no pat answers to suffering and there's no trite solutions to grief. But we cannot be afraid of lament. So we have to stop being afraid of lament. But the other reason that we are afraid of lament is because it sounds like complaining. We don't like it when we hear other people complain. Nobody likes a complainer. We don't like to be complainers. We don't want to be complainers. 
But the reality is lament is supposed to sound like complaint because it is. Psalm 64 says, Hear my voice, O God, in my complaint. Preserve my life from dread of the enemy. Job 7:11. he touched on it. Therefore, I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. He goes on, he complains again. Job 23, he says, Today also my complaint is bitter. My hand is heavy on account of my growing. There is no question here. Lament is complaint. You're supposed to sound like you're complaining. You're complaining about how the situation is. But Job knows that it's not easy for people to hear. But it doesn't stop him. Job knows that it's annoying his friends. Job knows what he sounds like. But it doesn't stop him. And I I love his answer to his friends in chapter 21. He says in 21.3, he says, Bear with me and I will speak. And after I have spoken, mock on. He says, let me speak, then carry on your mocking. Basically, he's saying, keep calm and mock on. Right? Like, don't, don't be confused here. Job knows what he sounds like. Job knows that he sounds like a complainer. Job knows that it's hard for his friends to listen to. But he says, just bear with me. I will speak, and after I'm done complaining, you can continue on your mocking. Go ahead. He knows what it sounds like, but that's lament. He, that is what he has to pray. And we're invited to bring our complaints to God in this form of prayer. So we should not fear complaining in our laments to God because this may surprise you, but God already knows all of your complaints. Just because you didn't pray them to Him doesn't mean He doesn't know what you're feeling and what you're thinking. You're not hiding it from Him simply by not praying about it. He already knows your complaint. And God has given us lament as the means by which we can express our complaint and express our grief and move through it. We can complain that the world is not as the world is meant to be. We can complain that the purpose that God had for us from the beginning of time has been broken. We can complain that sin and sickness and violence and anger have overwhelmed our lives at various points. And of all the people in the world, Christians know that this is not the way it is supposed to be. Think about it. Christians, because we know how it's supposed to be, have every right and every reason to complain to God that the world and our lives and things going on are not as they should be and to complain about it. What complaint does an atheist have if a tornado destroyed his house as it did Job? Or cancer cells destroy his body? Or a meteor crashes into the earth? That's just the universe working as intended. Atheists have no complaint. Because it doesn't matter. The universe just does what it does and there's nothing to complain about or complain to. But Christians know that this is not what God intended. He did not intend for lives to be destroyed. He did not intend for cancer and sickness. He did not intend for anger and violence. And so we can complain because we know that we are living in the in-between time of fallen redemption and that everything will be put right, but it's not right yet. And so God gives us lament to say, come and complain. Agree with me that the world is not the way it should be. God's not going to disagree with you when you come with your complaints. When, when you say, I am sick of being sick, when I am tired of being tired, when I'm wondering how long this suffering is going to go on, God is going to agree with you and say, you're right. It's not supposed to be like this. So don't be afraid of lamenting because it sounds like complaint. It's supposed to sound like complaint. In fact, feel free to lament poorly. 
Lament, as I said, is a journey where we begin in confusion and we begin in hurt and we begin in discouragement. That's the whole reason we start to lament is because we are hurt and grieved and confused. And so how would you start a lament right if you're starting out confused and hurt? So it, in a way, if your prayers sound really terrible at the beginning of lament, then you're actually lamenting correctly. Your prayers are supposed to sound terrible and confused at the beginning. You're supposed to sound like Job, where you just wish you didn't exist. Where you're basically just saying, I know I'm a complainer, but you're going to hear me complain. Job wasn't perfect at it either. He started with nothing more than wishing he was dead. That was the sum total of his theology of existence. He didn't want to exist anymore. Right? That was it. That's all he had at that point on the ash heap. I just don't want to exist. That's, that was his theology. But then as he continues on early in his lament, he says to his friends, he says, do you think that you can reprove words when the speech of a despairing man is wind? Job 6.26. You see, he's starting to move along in the journey of his lament and he's admitting to his friends, you know, my words here are just wind. I, I started out saying stuff and I just had to get it off my chest, but they are just wind. Why do you even answer my words when they will just blow away in the wind? Part of the journey of lament is starting out confused and grappling with how lost we are and and God isn't expecting us to have have it perfect. We should not expect other people to have it perfect when they lament. We should have discernment to not rebuke their wind words the way Job's friends did. Words that are just going to be blow away. I mean, if you're out there and you're a parent, moms especially today, wise parents and wise husbands or wives know this, that when their children or their spouse is angry, they will say some crazy things. They will even say some hurtful things. But if you've lived with them for long enough or you know them well enough, you know those days when they start saying things and you're just like, you know what, I'm just going to let the wind take those words away. Because I know after you've had a Snickers, you'll feel better. You've seen the commercials, right? Right? After you've had a Snickers, you're going to start to talk and make more sense. And that's essentially what Job is saying here. He's saying to his friends, why do you even rebuke? Why do you even respond to words that are going to be blown away in the wind? I am, self-admittedly, Job is saying, crazy right now. I am just complaining. I am just venting. I am just getting stuff off my chest. Have the wisdom to not rebuke my words. Just sit and listen, right? Job's friends sat for seven days in silence. And then they opened their mouths and ruined everything, right? And that's what Job is saying. Why are you rebuking my wind words? But that's just to say, feel free to lament poorly. We are allowed to just get stuff off our chest. There's no sense engaging with people who are lamenting that way, trying to you know, tell them they're sinning or they shouldn't talk to God that way or their faith isn't strong enough or whatever because you have to discern that in lament, people are just processing pain. They're just processing grief. So feel free to lament poorly. Don't feel like you have to have every word perfect or address God in exactly the right way when you're in the moment of lament. Now, that doesn't mean that there's not a biblical approach to lament. In the book of Job, we're informed that in all this, Job did not curse God or sin. And so there are things that we can do to avoid the danger of improper complaints to God. So so what is biblical lament? How do we lament? Just four quick things here. Uh, First of all, come humbly. We may start with an attitude towards God, but biblical lament never forgets who God is and who isn't God. Even as he demands to be heard, 
Job never is confused about where he stands before God. As you read through every lament of Job, he always makes it crystal clear, God is God and I'm not. So even as he brings his complaint, there is no question in Job's mind of what the order of relationship here. And so when we lament, we come humbly before the God of the universe. He's in control. Secondly, pray the Bible. If you want to lament well, just pray Scripture to give proper voice to your pain. Job never had this advantage. It's the first book of the Bible probably that was ever written. So there was no Bible before this. Job didn't have the advantage that we have. Right? We have Job, we have the Psalms, we have Lamentations, we have portions of Samuel, Chronicles, Esther, we have the major and minor prophets. We have so many laments in Scripture to guide us. We have no excuse to not pray back to God His own word so that we get lamenting right. And every situation you can imagine is found somewhere in the laments of Scripture. Thirdly, be honest. We struggle sometimes to tell God what we're feeling, but none of our complaints or feelings take Him by surprise. He already knows, and He's asked us to come to Him. When we read these verses in Job and in the Psalms, it's hard to imagine any more honesty than we read here. Right? God, have you forgotten to be loving? How long are you going to be set against me? Right? Like, How much more honest can you be in your relationship to God than that? So bear your soul. Be absolutely honest with yourself and God when you lament. Hold nothing back in your lament. It's meant for you to discover the depths of your heart and what you're feeling and to expose it to God so that then the healing process can begin. You start in confusion and grief and lamenting poorly. You start with wind words, but as you get the honest feeling of your heart out before God, those wind words begin to disappear. And as, you, as we move through Job, we'll see Job's lamenting transform. But as we're honest and we get those things out, God is then able to heal. And that brings us to the fourth point, which is don't stay in complaint. The goal of complaint is to move past despair. It's to move past grief. It's to move past the venting of wind words. It's to move you on to the next step. Lament is necessary. It's a process, and complaint is just the early step. It moves you towards restoration of hope and restoration of trust. The journey or the process of lament, what it's meant for. Remember, I said lament is a prayer in pain that leads to trust. And so lament is different than just crying out. It's directed towards God. Lament is a prayer because you are speaking to God as you lament. It makes it prayer. Lament acknowledges pain. It's an honest complaint about the circumstances in the world and in our lives. And it leads us towards trust. It's not a dead end. Lament is not a place where you're meant to dwell. It's not a road that leads you to a cul-de-sac and you're just stuck in despair the whole time. Lament leads you out of despair. It's not only emotional purging, although it is that. God has given us lament to help us process these emotions and these questions and confusion that we have. But it's also theological commitment to a God who will redeem. And so we've been given this prayer language of lament to talk to God as we wait for Him to intervene. Lament is a prayer language we have to recover as a body of Christ. And it's a prayer, langu- a prayer language that we have to recover in our interaction with each other as well. We can see how Job's language begins to change as he moves through his own personal stages of lament. By chapter 19, listen to how Job is speaking now. Um, 
We started in three, so this is uh, 16 chapters later. Listen to how his lament has changed. He says, Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last He will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. You see? You see the journey? He's gone from... I don't even want to exist. I wish the day that I was born never even occurred on the calendar. To... I know my Redeemer lives and He's going to stand on this earth and after my flesh is gone, this skin is gone, still in the flesh, I will see God. Where's Job Hope? He knows what's going on. right? He knows God. He knows His redemption is coming. He knows His Redeemer lives. His language has transformed and it's, it's like, Job, I mean, your words were inscribed in better than rock that you were thinking of. And and your words were inscribed by something better than an iron pen. They were inscribed by the Spirit of God and the eternal Word of God. So Job, your lament, your suffering has eased the burdens of millions upon millions of believers that have followed after you. And Job wouldn't have taken heart in any of that. He didn't know any of us were going to be reading about his life. But Job isn't even hoping in that. At this point, he wants his words recorded in rock as testimony to his own faithfulness to God, who he calls Redeemer. His hope is in the knowledge that after he's destroyed, he will still see God. This is the gospel. In the first book of the Bible written, in the first interaction of God with his people, we hear the gospel. Job knows and believes in his eternal justification and salvation before God. When this flesh is gone, I will behold God. One aspect of the grace of lament that allows us, that, that, that lament gives us, is it allows us to memorialize our grief. Job says here that he wants to write in an iron pen on a rock. The point of lament is that one of the graces that it gives us is it lets us remember our grief so that we remember the journey we traveled, the lessons we learned, the intimacy we developed with God. You know, you read the book of Job, you read the book of Lamentations, there are a memorial. Now, we may not write a book. I encourage journaling. I hope you do write your prayers down. We might not write a book. But we are able in our laments to remember our journey through and out of grief with trust again in God. There's another grace of lament. It also is the ability to be utterly honest. Lament lets us unburden our deepest and most authentic thoughts. We basically come and lament to God and say, trite cliches won't make me feel better. I need something more than just a cliche. I have to get this off my chest. And this is how we make sense of the imprecatory or the cursing psalms, right? When we read those psalms where they want, you know, disaster to befall their enemy and their children to be destroyed and their wives to be barren and all those psalmists are writing those things and as as he's expressing the justice that he wants to see for his enemies and he he wants all these terrible things to happen these cursing psalms there's times in our life when we want to respond to hatred with hatred just like the psalmist did but as we read those psalms see the grace of lament The psalmists did not take matters into their own hands. The psalmists didn't actually attack their enemies. The psalmists who wrote those things never actually, you know, caused any of that disaster to fall upon their enemies. They're not attacking or responding in hate or destroying anyone. Rather, they are giving expression of their feelings to God and letting Him be the arbiter of justice. So you see, one of the graces of lament is it basically lets us go to God and say, this is how I feel about my neighbor and what he's doing. 
right? This is how I feel about my boss. This is how I feel about whatever is going on in my life. This is how I feel about my family. But you know what, God? I'm taking it to you. I'm not taking it out on them because you are going to be the arbiter of justice in my life. I'm going to pour myself out to you. So one of the graces of lament is we can be utterly honest with God. We can pour these imprecatory or, or just you know, cursing-type prayers out to him and just bear our soul how we feel, but then leave it to God and let him be the arbiter of justice. The grace of lament is the permission to say what we need to say to a God who will listen to it, who will process it, and then be able to we will be able to move out from it towards trust and hope again. Lament is not a failure of faith, but an act of faith. As we cry directly to God, because deep down at the roots of our Christian walk, we know like Job that our relationship with God is what we treasure most. It's a treasure to us and it's a treasure to God as well. To close off here, I'm just going to fast forward into the New Testament and just see lament in the New Testament context of the gospel in Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul laments this way in 2 Corinthians 4, 7-9. He says, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed. And lament, if we study and practice it correctly, lets us feel the affliction. It gives voice to the questions, to the perplexion. It lets us endure the persecution, but along the way doesn't allow us to be crushed or destroyed or despair. Sorry, one more grace. I overlooked one. One more grace or blessing of lament that I want to talk about, and that's the blessing or the grace of lament with others. Lament as a stance of the church towards each other in the world. Paul says in Romans 12:15 that we are to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And I just want us to take note of this that we can't come along we can come alongside others in lament and when we do we follow the advice of James 1:19 to be quick to hear and slow to speak. And as we come alongside brothers and sisters we'll bear each other's burden but but there is a grace in lament in the fact that we get to lament with other people that we get to come alongside them and bear their burden with them to mostly listen and then speak gently. And then finally, lament is a proper start to healing. Lament sets the tone of our heart that gets our heart right. Before we enter into conversation or before we enter into discipleship with those who are experiencing brokenness, if we lament with them first, it, it gets our hearts and minds into the right context with God's. It aligns our hearts with His. When we simply lament with someone that we're coming alongside of, when we lament with someone who is going through troubles, it doesn't solve the source of the problem itself, but the lament prepares us to address it properly. It puts us and God in the right position. And so that after we've lamented together, then when we bring the wisdom of Scripture and counsel to each other, it brings unity and humility and a place to move forward in hope and healing. And so don't overlook the value of lament in discipleship and in mentoring. To lament with the person that you are helping through suffering. It sets you both in the right place to find the right answers in Scripture. As we look at lament in the Gospel, lament lets us hear exactly what it is that Jesus came to offer. The good news of the Gospel is not about health and wealth and success in the here and now, It's not a prosperity gospel, but a gospel that reaches us in the very midst of our suffering and trials and certainly in our sin. And lament helps us understand that better. In a culture that tends to value authenticity, lament is a beautiful way to demonstrate authenticity that's biblical and gospel-centered. 
We basically say in lamenting, this is how Christians grieve. This is how we acknowledge our need for the gospel and that the gospel recognizes the reality of our suffering. The gospel is not some sort of pie-in-the-sky message that says if you believe in Jesus Christ, your world is going to be all better. You're going to win the lottery, you'll have a million dollars, your marriage will be perfect forever, your kids will all graduate from Harvard, and you'll never be sick. That's not the gospel. And lament shows us that the gospel is true in the sense that it faces the reality of the world. The gospel is that God has seen our suffering and that God will redeem our suffering. Even Job knew that his Redeemer lived and that he would see him. Job knew that 3,000 years before the cross. We have to know it on this side of the cross. Looking at Jesus on the cross himself, he quoted Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so in lament we see the roots of the gospel and the need for the gospel. And then lament finally sweetens our love for Jesus. When we think about lament, you can't think about lament without thinking about Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus, right? His friend who died, been buried for four days, five days, however long it had been. And Jesus knows, of all the people in the universe, Jesus knows that he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. And yet, standing before the tomb, Jesus is weeping. If he knows he's raising Lazarus from the dead, what is Jesus lamenting what is he weeping jesus is lamenting the brokenness of the world and that death this death right before him is the result of what is wrong with the world jesus is lamenting that death even has to happen jesus is lamenting that the world is the way the world is he's weeping before the tomb of a man he's about to raise from the dead because jesus is overcome with the grief and lamenting the wrongness of the world that he has come to redeem And so we see that Jesus is a man of sorrows, that he's acquainted with grief, that he enters into our brokenness, that he laments with us, even though he is the one that will make all laments cease. We know that he cares and can take our burdens to him. Jesus bought the right to make everything right, and one day he will. We're going to sing some psalms in heaven, I'm sure. But the psalms we're not going to sing in heaven are the lament psalms, because there will be no more lament. Jesus has earned the right to take all lament away, and he will. And so even in his crying out on the cross, even in his weeping before Lazarus' tomb, Jesus gives us a model. He enters into the suffering, and we have to enter into the mess and into the suffering of others. There's nothing tame or neat about grief, but we need to enter into it with them and lead them to trust and hope in God. So what are the next steps then in lament for you? I'll just give you these things and they're in your handout as well for your life groups. I would suggest that you read those psalms. In the, in the handout for Job, I've, I've isolated what the lament psalms are. Go to those psalms and read them. Read Lamentations. Pray with more lament language. Add the language of lament to your prayer life. And then share in your small groups or with a friend what you have cause to lament in the world. In other words, lean into lament as a required step of moving forward and trusting God. It's a journey, and you will start out in grief. You will start out in suffering. You will start out with angry questions and pointed questions. But as you speak your heart to God, it moves you out of that place in a healthy way. It moves us out of grief and confusion and into trust. That is the language of lament of Job. It's the language of lament that we have to recapture in our prayer life. 
Let's pray. And I'm just going to finish with a prayer of lament. And we'll see what it sounds like. (laughs) Father God, we come to you as a church family that has seen suffering. We have seen cancer. We have seen suicide. We have seen drug overdoses. We have seen stillborn babies. We have seen it all in this church family. We've seen abuse. We've seen violence. We've seen hatred. We've seen broken marriages. We're living through a lot of those right now. Father, we don't understand why the world is the way it is. And then outside of our family, we have mass shootings and we have natural disasters. We have churches getting shot up by crazy people with guns and lives being taken that make no sense. And we grieve with those families. We grieve with the families here that this is the unredeemed world, that we live in the in-between, that it is not now and not yet that you are going to redeem. Father, some days we're just angry. Angry that this is the life that we have. Angry that this is the way things are. Why don't you come sooner? Why don't you stop? Why don't you intervene? And Lord, we bring our complaints to you. We will have you hear our complaints. We will have you hear our heart questions. And Lord, we pray, and like Job, that we know that you are a Redeemer. We know that our Redeemer lives. We know that you will restore and that there is health and there is hope that is yet to come. But we ask the same question of the psalmist. How long, O Lord? How long until your redemption? How long until your restoration? Father, we pray for strength in our weakness. We pray that you would show us your truth in your word. We pray that you would encourage us by the brothers and sisters around us. We have nothing in this world that we can hope for. Everything in this world will ultimately let us down. But not you, Lord. You are the rock. You are the Redeemer. We put our faith in you. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.